0: Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. And This morning we are going to continue through our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, if you haven't already, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 1 through 12 as we read earlier uh, that, that Heather read to us. And uh, we read together, but we're going to be honing in on the last six verses. So we're going to be one, uh, uh, Matthew 5, verse 1 through 12. We're going to be honing in this morning on the last six verses, but we will recap the first six as well. So, um, but last Sunday, while you're turning there, uh, I, I do want <clears throat> to celebrate a big win from this past week. So uh, last Sunday was Mother's Day, and we celebrated Mother's Day by providing the opportunity to partner with Compassion International in Uganda And so uh, we wanted to, our goal was to partner with them in releasing uh, at least 30 children from poverty uh, in uh, Uganda in Jesus' name. And so uh, that was honestly a pretty lofty goal. I mean, this is a a partnership where we really engage and we try to, uh, I mean, these these numbers represent souls. I mean, this is a powerful organization. If you didn't get a chance to, uh, if you weren't here this past week, you can go online and uh, you can see what that was all about. We had a guy here named Owen from Africa. He was sponsored himself, and he gave a testimony as well, and it was a powerful, powerful week. Um, and so, again, our, our goal was to uh, sponsor 30 children, but you showed up, and you stepped up, and we were able to release 38 children from poverty in Jesus' name. So, that is great. Let's praise God. So, I, I, that is a joy. Like, he doesn't just delight in those children. I want you to get that he delights in you, and now we have the opportunity to share and impart to those kids through letters and embrace and prayer his love, his joy over them. And I think you're going to find that, for those of you that did sponsor, I think you're going to find that you're not just a blessing to those children, that those children are going to be a blessing to you. It's powerful. And to quote Owen, he, uh, the, the, the man that gave his testimony, he, he uh, approached me after the last service uh, last week, and um, he's got an African accent, so I'm going to try and capture it a little bit here. And he comes up to me, and he says, pasta, <laughs> like pasta, like the, anyway, pasta, this church is mighty. I love it. And he's right, and I completely agree. This church is mighty. And you know what makes us mighty? Jesus. Jesus. But it's not, us, it's not our numbers. It's not our numbers. That us, it's not our ambitions. It's not even our good works. Like, what makes us mighty is the love of Jesus that flows through you. Like, what makes us mighty is his presence and his power. And it's all for his purpose. What makes us mighty is that we actually care about what Jesus cares about because we care about Jesus. And so we care about the heart of God from the heart, not just out of like a a dry duty or obligation, but it's a heartfelt love of God and the things that God loves. And that's where true strength comes from. And that's actually what our current series on the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's a deep dive into the heart of Jesus. It's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, straight from the mouth of God in the flesh. And as I said a few weeks ago when we kicked this series off, we have to remember who it is that's preaching this sermon. Like we have to remember who Jesus actually is. Like this is God Almighty, the one that hung the stars in the sky He's the one who's speaking this. Not only the one that hung the stars in the sky, but also the one who hung on the cross on our behalf. He's the one preaching this. And so if you're going to understand or even begin to understand what it is that he's saying, you have to understand who it is that's saying it. Because this sermon gets misunderstood and misused all the time. We've got a three-chapter sermon three-chapter-long sermon here full of 103 verses, but it's not simply a set of instructions on how to build solid Christian resumes that we are to submit to God at the end of life. I pray that that's not how you view Christianity, and if that is how you view Christianity, I pray you don't leave here without just completely getting rid of that, because that is not how it goes. When I stand before the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and the judge of all eternity, I am not going to give him a resume. You know what I'm going to do? I'm gonna to point to Jesus and say, Thank you. Amen? Because you gotta understand that while all of this is highly practical, all of its practicality flows directly out of the practice of His presence. And I'm not talking about like presents like Christmas presents, okay? I'm talking about the presence of God with us. That's what all of this flows out of. In fact, the greatest gift, the only gift that truly matters is his presence with us. You need to understand that this entire sermon, this whole series, in fact, the entire ministry of the gospel is a portrait of grace. This is what Christ came to demonstrate and proclaim. There's a a man, oh, this is why I'm like on the verge here. There's a (laughs) a bittersweet uh, week, a man named Tim Keller. Any of you know who he is? He has taught me so much about who Jesus is and the beauty of the gospel. In fact, not only has he taught me, he taught the people who taught me. He he was like the mentor to my mentors, and and he's written so many books, and he's had such, I mean, I don't even know how to quantify the impact that he has had because of the love that Jesus just showers through him, and he has had such an impact, and he went to be with Jesus this past Friday. He had an aggressive cancer that took him, and it's bittersweet. He it, all the way through, the man who literally wrote the book on pain and suffering walked through it, praise God, and he's now in glory. And so how could I not quote him this morning? And so I want to use a quote that I think really sums up really the gospel itself so well, and this is Tim Keller, and this is what he says. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Whew! I want you to get that. Because the reality is, is that most people, not being able to handle the first part, never get to the second part. Or they just ignore the first part and they skip straight to the second part, but it's hollow because they've never really embraced what he's done for them. So I'm going to say it again. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so this Sermon on the Mount starts off with a section known as the Beatitudes. In the first section of the sermon, it, 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 this Beatitudes, we get eight Beatitudes, eight blessings. It's the word beatus in Latin. That's what it comes from, and it simply means blessings. And so we're given eight different descriptions of what it looks like to be blessed. But when we look at the way Jesus uses the term blessed, again, it's not just about circumstances or situations or stuff that makes life set apart as good. What separates the blessed from everyone else according to Jesus isn't about their personality traits or the things that they're given or or, or any of those things. What defines those who are blessed according to Jesus Christ isn't what they're blessed with. And I would even add that it's, it's not only about what they're blessed to do also. Not just what you're blessed with, but it's not just about what you're blessed with or what you're blessed even to do. What characterizes those who are blessed is who they're blessed with. It's not about what you get in this life or even how easy or comfortable or successful things turn out for you. That's not what characterizes the blessed life. What characterizes the blessed life, according to Jesus Christ, is who you get in this life and the next And so a few weeks ago, we honed in on the first four Beatitudes, which really describe the vertical relationship that we have with God. And then they build upon one another and they flow out of one another. And then the last four, which we're going to hone in on and look primarily at this morning, they flow right out of the first four like a response to them. Again, the first four speak to our vertical relationship with God. And then the last four, they flow out of that vertical relationship into our horizontal relationship relationships with one another and the world around us. But as we are going to see, the last four Beatitudes are completely dependent upon the first four. In other words, you're not going to be able to operate out of these next four if you're not honed in on the first four. So this morning, I'm going to briefly recap the first six verses or those first four uh, Beatitudes so we can fully understand the next six verses so, we want to hone in. I'm going to, we're going to look at and recap that vertical relationship with God so that we can understand what it means when it flows into our horizontal relationships with one another. So, here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. It's the same idea, the same main idea that I gave you a few weeks ago when we kicked this ser- sermon series off, okay? This is what it is. You ready? To be blessed isn't about what you get in this life. It's about who you get, both in this life and in the life to come. Namely, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So let's drop back to uh, Matthew 5, verse 1. Here we go. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... This is Jesus' teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, again, if you miss this first section, you're going to miss the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. And really, honestly, again, the entire point of Christ's ministry altogether. But Jesus here is giving us the blueprints for grace. He's spelling out the necessary factors for relational reconciliation and restoration with God. This is what it looks like to truly live blessed, to truly live reconnected or even connected to the source of all life and all goodness and true love. But it all unavoidably begins with being poor in spirit. See, it's a, a picture of heartfelt confession about what is true. And what's true? I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. But my faith and my hope is in the one who does. He is enough for me. He is the very doorway into the king of heaven. He's not only the doorway to the kingdom of heaven, he's the king of heaven. And Jesus is giving us the fundamental prerequisite for receiving the gospel of grace. Again, if you're not poor in spirit, you're not even going to be able to understand the Sermon on the Mount. You can't. If you're not poor in spirit, this is not going to make any sense at all. Like if you're not poor in spirit, if you think you've got this locked down and you think you're good enough or you're even capable of being good enough, like, you're bound to build your resume to give to God? Or 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 you think that this is even about, like, giving it your best try, like, just, just try your best, and then his mercy. Guys, that's actually Islam. Like, that's Judaism. Like, that's every other false religion that tries to be enough, but it's missing the one thing that matters. Say one thing. It's Jesus if you think you've got this locked down, guys, listen to me. Yours are the fallen kingdoms of this world, but not the kingdom of heaven. Yours are the kingdom of Herod and the Pharisees. Yours is the kingdom of secular society or the religious, real, religious legalism. Right? Both of these things strive for glory or, or, or self-sufficiency. After all, who needs Jesus when you've got money and power? Like who needs Jesus when you're on a crusade to prove your own righteousness according to the law? But Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. Right? He, he came to those who recognize their need, not the deludedly self-sufficient. The truth is we're all sick, but only some of us recognize it. And even fewer confess their need and even that desire for the doctor and that medicine of grace that is so sufficient. You see, when you're poor in spirit, you recognize your need and you then mourn, you grieve the sinful state of our world and even your own heart, unless you think you're perfect. You see, it's a confession about what is true about this world and the state of our own souls and our constant need, constant need for a Savior and His grace, which is continual and, again, all-sufficient. See, it's not a need we once had a long time ago. It's a need we continually have to be poor in spirit, to mourn the distance between you and God, to long for that face-to-face restoration. That's what it means. But here's the thing, through the Holy Spirit, we get these deep glimpses of what that full face-to-face glory will be like. Like, anybody anybody mourn the state of things? Anybody grieve? Anybody long to be face-to-face with God? Anybody desire things to, you look at this world, you look at your own heart, you look at relationships, and you go, this is not how it should be, something has taken a wrong turn. Anybody long for that to all be made right? That's what it is to mourn. But see, through the Holy Spirit that we're given, we get these deep glimpses of what that full face-to-face glory is gonna be like even now. We see having access to a spirit now is like the the scriptures put it like a it's a down payment on what we will receive in full. Like when you put a down payment on a house or car, right? You're giving the the upfront, you're giving a, a portion of what you will get one day in full. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's how we're given, that's the description we're given of the access we have to the spirit now. It's a a glimpse of the fullness that is to be at glorification when Jesus comes back and heaven comes to earth. It's one of the reasons why we're called to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on on heaven, or sorry, on earth as it is in heaven. You You know what you're basically saying there? Holy Spirit, break out in Jesus' name, in people's hearts, from the inside out. So having access to his spirit now That's why it's so important to sit with Him and to pray and to experience His very present Spirit with us. That's why 1 Thessalonians tells us that we we do not mourn as those without hope, because our living hope in Christ and His very present and very real Holy Spirit sets us apart from the hopeless world around us. So when we look at the world and we look at the distance and we look at the difficulty, we don't mourn the same way because we have access to that down payment. And I'm going to tell you something. I think oftentimes people like to limit that as much as they can, the access that we have to his spirit now. And I'm going to say none of you have plumbed the depths of the limits to which his spirit will break out and pour out in your life. Because if it's a down payment of an eternal, infinite glory, (laughs) I'm about to preach a whole other message. Guys, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. That God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live. And he died the death we deserved to die because of sin. This is what death and sin, this is why it's all here in the first place. We deserve it. But he took it and he bridged the gap through the resurrection. And he paved the way to eternal life with God the Father to provide the same sonship that he has with the Father. He offers it to you. And it's an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die. It starts the moment we place our hope and our faith in what he did at the cross through the resurrection, which takes the penalty and it bridges the gap and it says your sins are as far as the east is from the west. Now come to me. Now receive me because I want to breathe life into you and change you from the inside out. This is the gospel. It's not just something that starts one day when we die. It starts now. But the reception of His Holy Spirit only happens when you are poor in your own spirit. If you think you have no need of Him, guess what? You're not going to hunger and thirst for Him. You see, arrogance, pride, self-righteousness, those things... Whew, that's, that quenches that the Spirit really fast. The Holy Spirit is quenched in the midst of a people where arrogance reigns and self-righteousness. But for those who are poor in spirit and accept that our acceptance isn't based on anything that we have or have not done, but solely trust in Him and what He has done, guys. This is everything. This is the gospel. Again, the gospel is this. According to Keller, this is what he says. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. (sighs) Take a deep breath. Everybody take a deep breath in. (sighs) Now. This is the gospel. This is the gateway to our comforter. And it leads them to meekness and humility. it Full trust and surrender. Not insisting on our own way or our own wisdom or our own abilities, but trusting in his. This is what blessing looks like. That's what Jesus is saying. That's how he kicks it all off. And it cultivates this deep hunger and thirst to be with him, then. It recognizes that I don't have what it takes, but you do. So I want to be where you are. I want to be like you. I want to be in you. And I want you to be in me. This is what verse six is talking about. All five verses, all of it. Look, it goes to verse six and listen. Blessed, Matthew 5, verse 6 blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So it all builds upon itself to this culminating satisfaction, which is only available in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ. The question is, are you hungry for him? Do you thirst for his presence, for his affirmations, or are you so full of the junk food and the counterfeits and the, 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 the stuff of this world that you have no appetite for him? Do you know that He is available to you even now through His Holy Spirit in ways that we've barely brushed the surface on? You see, this verse, Matthew 5, verse 6, it's the hinge point. It's the centerpiece of the Beatitudes. It's where the vertical flows into the horizontal. Because the next six verses and four blessings only apply to those who hunger and thirst for Jesus. If you don't hunger and thirst for Jesus, then guess what? all of the other things that we're about to talk about, you're just, it's going to be impossible. (laughs) There's no way. This only applies to those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and consider all else in this fallen world a loss, counterfeit junk food that's just spoiling my appetite for the only one who's satisfying. And listen to me. To the extent that you don't consider the things of this world a loss or even your own ability and wisdom a loss, is the extent to which you will struggle to receive these next four blessings. I'm going to say that again. To the extent that you do not consider the things of this world a loss or your own abilities and wisdom, a loss is the extent to which you will struggle to receive these next four blessings. Because the only th- these things only flow through and to those who find their all-sufficient satisfaction in the grace of Jesus Christ Christ. Alone. That's it. And I got to tell you something. That wreaks havoc on our pride and our ego and our flesh. But it is rest to your soul. Amen? Verse 7. Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so these next four Beatitudes aren't just about right activity or behavior. You see it? I want you to get this. This isn't something that you can achieve by just trying harder. It's clear that the only reason someone has any of these characteristics is because they've been blessed. Blessing comes first. The only way any of this takes place, just like how the verdict comes before the performance in the gospel of grace, right? This thing's upside down and inside out from the way our self-centered flesh and ego in this world wants to do things. It's upside down. You'll never become more merciful or pure in heart by trying to be more merciful or pure in heart. Like, good luck. Like, the only way is by hungering and thirsting for deeper alignment and intimacy with Jesus. That's why it starts with being poor in spirit. It's the acknowledgement that you can't do it. The question is, are you hungry for deep relationship with him? To delight in his delight. To find your total satisfaction in Christ alone. That's what this is all about. You see, if you don't find satisfaction in him, guys, you're going to look for it somewhere else. And so you'll never rejoice in the midst of persecution or reviling simply because you're supposed to. <laughs> I mean, you just, good luck with that. You know why? These are heart conditions. Dutiful obligation without intimate joy only ultimately becomes resentment every time. You might stave it off for a while, but it always eventually manifests both vertically towards God and horizontally towards each other. In one way or another, the only way that any of this is possible, the only way that any of these, th- those things even become blessings in your life is if the entire point of your life is satisfaction in Christ alone. Anybody feeling a little poor in spirit right now? Like you're struggling with this? Good. Good, means you're on the right track. Again, this is about intimate alignment with and satisfaction in Jesus. That's what righteousness really means. This isn't just about right activity or behavior. It's about soul level alignment. That's why Jesus uses this language of being hungry and thirsty. It's from deep in here. It's a hunger and a thirst for knowing the love and acceptance and approval of God the Father, even as Jesus Christ experiences it from the Father. You've been invited into the relationship that God the Son has with God the Father. What? Guys, that's Christianity. That's what Jesus came to do. It's almost as if this thing is more relationally intimate then you can fathom. It's almost as if He loves you. Because He does. That's what Jesus has br- come to bring us. This is, this is all about this intimate Father-Son relationship. Christianity is an invitation to experience the everlasting and unconditional love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're immersed into Him. It's not about a sterile, detached idea or concept. It's about receiving the very tangible embrace of God the Father through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is all about knowing and enjoying and hungering and thirsting and finding your total satisfaction in Him. More and more and more higher up deeper in it's all about relationship every good sermon gives you the main idea up front right and then it clarifies it at the end and that's exactly what jesus actually does in the sermon on the mount here right here at the beginning of chapter five he's giving us the main idea in verse six even we just read it and then again he's going to circle back in matthew seven verse 21 at the end of his sermon he's going to kind of restate the main idea And we'll get there towards the end of the summer as we walk through this series together. But look with me real quick as a fast forward, right, to Matthew 7, verse 21. And so the context of this passage, he's just been talking about uh, judging a tree by its fruit. Right? You judge a tree by its fruit. That's kind of what Jesus has just been talking about. And then that then begs a question. A really good question that I think we all need to lean in on here and pay attention to. What kind of fruit is Jesus talking about? You judge a tree tree by its fruit, right? So what kind of uh, fruit is he talking about? Is it that religious resume? Is that the fruit? Is that what's produced? Maybe like having obedient children. Is that the fruit of a good tree? Maybe. Is that what he's talking about here though? Or how much I give or serve? Or how many times I've read the Bible, is that that what we're talking about here? Or doing these great and mighty works for God, is that the fruit that justifies a good tree? Is that what he's talking about here? Well, he tells you. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay? Okay. So, what does it look like to do the will of your Father who is in heaven? God, you ask. Look at verse 22. On that day, day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's pretty good work, don't you think? That seems like some substantial fruit. Or how about cast out demons in your name? Pretty substantial fruit. People sending demons screaming and running. Seems like that's got to be a good tree, right? That's pretty powerful fruit. And do many mighty works in your name. Many mighty works in your name. Did we not do all of these things? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Oh, What? Guys, this is about relationship. Beware of having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The power is in the relational intimacy. It's in the relational alignment. The blessing is about who we're blessed with, not just what we're blessed with. And the fruit then is also not just about the stuff or the success in terms of what we produce physically. It's not about the great things that you do or you think you've done or you think you can do or accomplish on behalf of God as if you are working for God or some kind of tool for God and that's how you justify your existence or relationship. No! The will of the Father is receiving your sonship in Christ not merely doing impressive things. Now all those things are great, praise God, amen, but they flow out of that intimate relationship with him. That's what he came. Have you received your sonship? Have you received your daughterhood in him? Like you cast out demons? Great. You prophesied? Fantastic. You did mighty works in his name? Amazing. Not if I never knew you. Not if he doesn't know you. Not if you don't know him. Then it's all done in self-righteousness. So if the fruit isn't about mighty works, then what's it about? Well, the fruit then is relational. It's the fruit that can only come from being satisfied. In Christ alone. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is actually spelled out for us in Galatians 5. In Galatians 5, look at verse 22 and 23. He says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self-control. That's not fruit that you just, granted I'm going to be more gentle. Look at the next phrase here. Against such things, there is no law. It's not just about the works done through you guys. It's about the work done in you. You can do many great things as you spiral into bitterness. But the heart that grows in intimacy and trust and prayer and in love with the Lord, that's where the true fruit of the Spirit manifests. This is what the blessed life looks like. It's like a beloved child enjoying the delight of their doting father just because of whose they are. Not because they're playing nicely. But when they are delighted in the doting love of the Father, guess what? It will play pretty well. This is the power of the gospel. This is grace. Guys, you're going to struggle with this. God knows I do. So if you're, you're missing the mark here, if you find yourself missing the mark, then be encouraged. Because that just means you're poor in spirit. Like if, you're, if you're in here and you think you've got this locked down you're just crushing this thing, and you're like, yeah, that's exactly how I am. I am perfectly loved and I'm all this. Guess what? You're probably a little further off than you might think. Because that actually wouldn't be poor in spirit. That would actually be arrogant. You see how this works? It's beautiful, and there's a humility here. So mourn the distance between what is and what could be relationally because none of us are fully face-to-face yet. Submit yourself then in surrendered meekness to his word and spirit and let him cultivate that hunger and that thirst for himself in you. This is the beauty of it. Again, this is all about the gospel of grace. Look at verse seven. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. When you're aware of your own need for mercy, you'll also become patient then with the flaws of other people. And when you drink deeply of God's mercy for you, then you become full of mercy for others. Mercy full, really, right? You ever notice how those who are most harsh with others are even harder on themselves? Have like you ever noticed that there are the people that are most critical with Others also, they they have a hard time receiving criticism from others. Because I know there's kind of like a weird virtue in the self-centered world that's kind of like, oh, I'm just so, you know, I'm really hard on myself. And everybody's like, oh, what a noble thing. Guys, that's not noble. It's just pride. That's all that is. And pride always goes before the fall into shame. And they live. This is how the world lives on this teeter-totter seesaw of pride and shame and pride and shame. And it just cultivates malicious and judgmental hearts that are far from God and bitter fruit towards others. And it's all just a symptom of where you are relationally with God. But... When you behold and you receive the mercy and the grace God has shown you in Christ, and you actually receive it, I mean, reach out your hands and receive it, then mercy starts to become second nature. That's part of the sanctification and spiritual maturity process that we grow in. That's when we're able to forgive just as we've been forgiven. But if you view God as unmerciful, then guess what? So will you be. See, in this world, being unmerciful is like a coping mechanism for those who have been hurt. This is why hurt people hurt people, right? They hide behind malicious words as a weapon to protect themselves. This is cancel culture in a nutshell. This is what we're dealing with in this world. It's way more concerned. That cancel culture, that that offended lifestyle... It's way more concerned about proving themselves right and others wrong than providing an opportunity for reconciliation or even restoration to others. The desire is not restoration and reconciliation. It's I win, you lose. I'm right, you're wrong. I've justified myself by my own self-righteous actions and condemned you. That is not the way of the kingdom of heaven. You see, the economy of the kingdom of heaven, like, in the economy of the kingdom of heaven, being unmerciful towards others isn't a symptom of the blessed. It's a symptom of being out of step with the heart of God. And that's a curse. The good news of grace in Christ, though, is his merciful presence is extended to you to break that curse and replace it with blessing. The question is, are you hungry for it? It often takes some serious sacrifice, by the way, to operate in that, especially in our world. We're going to get to that in a second. You see, it doesn't mean, though, listen, it doesn't mean that you just operate without wise boundaries for toxic people and circumstances, right? But it does mean that this is all carried out mercifully, not vindictively. You guys tracking? This is heavy. It's probably going to get a little heavier, so just sit tight. Verse 8. Here we go. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want you to get this. To be pure in heart, listen to this. It, It means to be undivided, undistracted. To be pure in heart means that your desire is true and good from your inner heart's desire. And what is the highest and purest good that we could ever desire? God, right? And so it's about our desire being for God. Undistracted, undivided desire him, his face, seeing him. In Luke 10, there's a story of two sisters named Mary and Martha. And Martha is busy and distracted by many things. and She's trying to serve Jesus, but her sister Mary is simply sitting at Christ's feet in adoration. It's one of the most challenging and convicting stories in all of scripture to me because I personally find myself toiling away in service to the Lord. I don't know about you. In fact, I do know about some of you, <laughs> right? I find myself doing these things, and listen to me, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. Serving Jesus is a part of loving and worshiping him. It's good, but not at the expense of loving and worshiping him. You need to understand this. That's where Martha missed it. She was so consumed with her duties and the desire to impress and to live up to expectations that she lost sight of the one thing that matters. Say one thing. And and so as our hearts are prone to do then, when we get caught up in our own self-important agendas, Martha became bitter toward her sister. And she even tried to use Jesus to shame her sister into helping, which is also a tendency of the self-important and distracted heart. Look at Luke 10, verse 40. It says this, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? See, she's not just bitter towards her sister. She's also like, God doesn't care. You ever been there? And then says, she says, Tell her then to help me. She's commanding God to do something here. That's a problem. Verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. When God says your name twice, pay attention. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Say one thing. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Whew! One thing. One undivided pursuit. This is a picture of the pure in heart. And what is that one pursuit? It's the pursuit of him. To see him, to know him, to worship him, to align with him, to be with him where he is, like he is. For him to even be in you. One pure, heartfelt desire. This is what blessing looks like. It's not stuff, it's not things, it's not circumstances, it's a person. It's his presence which is accessible to us all even now in the Holy Spirit. In fact, and this blows my mind, Jesus said his presence would be more accessible to us now through the Holy Spirit than his presence was even to Mary then. Now that's hard to grasp. Now I want you to think about this. Like you think about it, if Jesus Christ in the flesh were to walk up that those stairs, and walk into this room, I would hope that all of you would completely ignore me and run and sit at his feet, right? I'll probably beat you there, right? But I want you to get this, because in John 16, Jesus says that it was better that he goes to the Father so that the Holy Spirit would come. J.D. Greer puts it like this: He says, it's better to have the Spirit inside of you than Jesus beside of you. In other words, we have now more access to the presence of God than even Mary did when he was standing right in front of her. And some of you are like, I don't know about that. I can see your faces right now. You're like, huh, no, no. This is the whole point. This is why he came is to graft us in and he meets us and he's not just beside us. He comes to fill you, to overflowing. There's a deep intimacy available to us in the spirit of God, even now. And it's just a down payment of what's to come. The question is, are you hungry? Are you thirsty for his presence or just busy about many things? One thing matters. Say one thing, and when you live from that blessed purity of heart to see him, to be in his presence, Jesus tells us that you shall, you shall, and that's how we experience true shalom, that true peace, and that's how we then become agents of that peace in this world of fallen chaos. This is what the Great Commission is all about. It's for you to become peacemakers, shalom makers. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. See, true peace is shalom. It's not just about a a ceasing of conflict. It's not just about getting people to to get along, right? Like, this world is, is jacked up, and it's not just like, hey, tolerate one another. No, Jesus says, I came to bring the sword because I am saying the only way to true peace, true restoration, true reconciliation is in Christ alone. That's it. That's it. And so what he's saying here is that bring hol- the only way to bring holistic peace, true shalom, is through the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And so it's a picture, again, of total holistic restoration and reconciliation with God and others on a soul level. But in order to be a peacemaker, in order to be a shalom maker, we must experience that for ourselves, which is why that hunger and thirst for the Prince of Peace himself is so paramount. Because this world is bitter, it is hateful, it is confused, and it's chaotic. It blames and shames and lashes out in the midst of helpless harassment and toil and trouble. The only solution is the good shepherd. He's the only way out of this. He's the only way through this. It's not just a set of rules or behavior modification. All that does, uh, like all of that stuff, all all those rules and behavior modification, all that does is slap a religious sticker of bitterness and self-importance. On a people who are just lost and still struggling and helpless and harassed. The only solution is knowing, loving, enjoying, and being enjoyed by God in the way that God the Father enjoys God the Son. And it's not just reading His Word, it's taking five to ten minutes at least after reading His Word to just focus on Him and worship Him, to thank Him, and to soak up His goodness in prayer. Like turn on some worship music and connect with the living God because he's alive and he promises when you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. It's not just about filling up this. It's about filling up this. That's Christianity, guys. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He is the one and only true son of God, but he's called us to take this gospel of grace into the world as children of the most high god so operating as children with a father who delights in them not because of what they do but because of whose they are this is the great commission this is what it looks like to make disciples who make disciples in christ alone this is why he uses the term sons of god they'll be sons of god you know what you have to have in order to be a son of god you gotta have a father This is what it looks like to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other and our city and beyond. But here's the thing. When you do that consistently for any length of time, you can be sure that you're going to catch it from both sides. Both from the lost world and society and religious legalism. You're going to catch it from both ends. In Mark 8, 15, Jesus actually tells us, he warns us, he says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which were like the religious elite of the time, and the leaven of Herod. Remember, Jesus was crucified by both the Romans and the Jews. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, so let's recap here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the hungry and thirsty, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the shalom makers. (laughs) The whole thing is topsy-turvy, right? It's upside down until you drop back and you listen to the why behind the what. Why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall be called sons of God. You see, this is the why behind the what, and it's the only thing that matters. It's all completely relational. It's all about the one thing, all the way from comfort to sonship and inheritance. It's all about personal relationship. And so now, now we've come to the most upside down and inside out beatitude of them all. The one that does not make any earthly sense. And yet also it's the one that has the highest potential of all of them for cultivating deep intimacy with God. I mean, like, really embracing that sonship on a soul level. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But that's taking it too far, right? Like, come on, this is like hyperbole, really. I mean, like, like, if these others felt like a stretch, like, this is crossing the line, right? Like, you don't really believe this, do you? He can't really mean that. And maybe this is applies to people in like North Korea, but not in America. And, and granted, hear me, yeah, it's not really comparable to what's going on in places that are like true life threatening persecution. But I want you to understand that wherever this gospel of grace is proclaimed, there's going to be a spiritual battle going on. There's a war that's being waged against it from both sides. And so just because Jesus knows what you're thinking here, when you're like, yeah, but you can't really mean that, he doubles down on it. In fact, this is actually known as the double blessing beatitude, because he restates verse 10 in verse 11 and verse 12, and even drives it home in case you missed it, saying, rejoice and be glad. Like, rejoice and be glad? When you're persecuted and reviled, like your reward is great in heaven? Like, first of all, how, how do you rejoice and be glad when you're being persecuted and reviled? Like, you know, like, like praise God, people are secretly sowing suspicion and lies and creating division, saying things aren't true about you. Hooray! You gotta be a little detached, right? Like, that, that seems a little crazy. How does that work? Again, The why behind the what for every beatitude is personal intimacy with God. The joy of knowing and being known by the all-satisfying lover of your soul. Not just one day when you die, but now, in this life, through your comforter, the Holy Spirit. And hear me, a good reputation is important. Amen? It is. Some of you may not believe that, but here, I got some scriptures for you. Encouragement, affirmation, even approval from those around you, that is a good, godly thing. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Or, or Proverbs 16, verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Like encouragement from people is good. We should be encouragers of one another and honoring one another. We see this all through the scriptures. So when you're falsely reviled, rejoicing and being glad isn't normally at the top of the list of responses. Unless you're tuned into the voice of your Heavenly Father. It forces you to tune in to the voice of your heavenly father. Not to just be like, I don't care what they think. I only care, only God can judge me. Well, the truth is God can judge you and he will judge you. So you do need to go before him and say, God, search me and know me and see if there's any evil way within me and lead me on the path of everlasting life and live out a soft, repentant heart, poor in spirit, amen? But as you do, when you do, You tap into the direct source of all encouragement and promise and goodness and joy and grace. This is the gospel. But that's when your soul is hewn out deeper and your capacity then for joy and intimacy in the Lord is actually enlarged by the grace of God in the midst of those circumstances. That's why you can consider it all pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. That's what he's talking about. In fact, this is why I think he rolls right into rewards in heaven. Think about this. Too often people think heavenly rewards, they think of them as stuff, right? You think about heavenly rewards? You ever heard that before? Like, I got a mansion in heaven, man. I sponsored some compassion kids. I got like a heavenly Lamborghini waiting for me. Right? But that's not really how the Bible talks about heavenly rewards. In fact, I would say that that perspective is way lower than the kind of reward that Jesus is talking about. Okay? Like a Lamborghini, it's kind of like considered a loss compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus. And the capacity for knowing him more is cultivated, guys, in this life. But the truth is that, yes, rewards in heaven are a real thing, but the rewards are ultimately relational, not materialistic. But the reason heaven is so heavenly is because of the full manifest presence of God and all his glory. And the capacity your soul has for taking in his goodness and his glory and his love and his joy is the measure by which you will experience the fullness of his glory for eternity. Somebody ought to shout for that. It's in this life that we cultivate our capacity to experience all that delight and goodness. You see, this is why 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus himself. The kingdom of heaven is the economy in which God's presence is felt and experienced and worshipped. That's why people that don't love Jesus will never find heaven heavenly. Heaven is heavenly because of his presence. Heaven is heavenly because every good gift is immediately traced to its ultimate source in him. That's what God desires to cultivate in each one of you right now in this life. He wants to refine remove all the distractions and produce that purity of heart, that one thing that creates that fertile soil for your relationship with him to grow and the capacity of your own soul to experience his full goodness for eternity in heaven. That's cultivated now. He's teaching us to find our ultimate joy and gladness in Him no matter what the circumstance is. And when the circumstance gets turned up, when the heat gets turned up, you've got to find your faith and trust and surrender in Him. And that means dying to yourself and living unto Him. It's difficult, but whew, it's good. And so to hide in Him, rest in Him, seek Him and His righteousness first, the hunger, thirst for Him, His presence more and more, higher up, deeper in, in every corner of our souls. That's when you not only endure persecution and reviling, but God enables you to rejoice in glad worship even in the midst of it all. And hear me, hear me, guys. It doesn't excuse gossip or slander or divisiveness. It doesn't excuse reviling. It doesn't excuse if you've got an encouraging word being like, well, I don't want to puff them up. That's flattery. That's a whole different thing. Encourage, love one another, honor one another. Reviling and sowing suspicion through like secret conversations and bearing false witness, that's called an abomination to the Lord according to Proverbs 6. And an abomination is something in, in what we see in the scriptures, an abomination is something that spreads through the land like a virus. It's like an infection. And it says he hates it. It's wrong, ungodly, and it hurts people. Proverbs 6 puts it like this, verse 16 through 19. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. And oftentimes, listen to me, this stuff happens because there's a spiritual war taking place and we become, when we lose sight of his goodness and his grace and his mercy and the poor in spirit and all of these things, then we're easily given over to being tools for an enemy that loves to cause these things in the midst of the church. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 to go and speak with your brother or sister if you have an issue. Go straight to them because according to Ephesians 6, again, our battle's not with flesh and blood but with spiritual powers and principalities. Stuff is real. One of their top demonic priorities is to divide and create chaos and suspicion and division among God's people. But God, listen to me. He's so good. He's so good that even when you're on the receiving end of all that, there's a double blessing available for you to, to take you deeper into his love and his grace. You now, this doesn't make any sense to those who haven't experienced the unconditional, steadfast love of God in Christ. None of this makes sense. Like the reviler expects reviling in return. But that's not the way of the blessed, it's not the way of Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 12, and I'm going to close with this. He says, Romans 12, verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, which is like the church, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Again, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3, 8-9, he says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, not a hard heart, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now part of being poor in spirit, again, is that realizing we're all prone to miss the mark here. All of us. Which is why it's so important to be merciful and be quick to forgive even as you've been forgiven. (laughs) This is what maturity in Christ looks like. And it is a process. It's about receiving grace. It's about offering grace. Not just through proclamation, but demonstration. This is who the church is. And it's all to the glory of God. Not because we're perfect, but because we're perfectly loved. Let's pray.